0: Well, we commence a, another new psalm series, so I lip ahead 20 or so psalms, and look. I thought at the songs of ascent. Um, each of the psalms from 120 through to 134, as was just told to you, start with this little phrase, "a song of ascent." We're not sure what it means. The usual explanation is a guess. That is. That these were the songs sung by the, the um, pilgrims as they climbed up the hills towards Jerusalem, and so it 's the songs of a sense. but that 's a guess we 've got no actually knowledge that that is the case that 's just how people normally think of it that 's because when you go to Jerusalem it 's in the hill country. But it's also because whenever you go up to the capital, you go up to the capital. I mean, we go up to Canberra. Uh, well, some of us do. Some of us think it's more a downhill slide. But the theory is you go up to the capital, even though it's south of you and even though it might be beneath you in terms of altitude, there is this sense of going up to things. Um, so, I thought we'd just go through these one, but they're short, and so I thought we'd be able to manage more than one in a lunchtime, and we might be able to get through most of them over the next few weeks. So, firstly, then, Psalm 120, as Naomi just read for us, and it commences with a plea In my distress I called to the Lord, and he answered me, Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. The psalmists. And God's people are often in distress. We are distressed and when distressed we plead to the God and he answers us and he delivers us. When life gets tough we turn to God in prayer and ask for protection and the ability to endure. Sometimes it is the strength that he gives us that enables us to experience and go through, learn and grow from the troubles of life. Sometimes he rescues us from them. Either way we pray for both. The psalmist prayed and was conscious of God's deliverance. For his prayer was to be delivered from lies and deceit. Well here we need to take seriously the problem of the tongue and lips. For we tell our children sticks and stones may break your bones but names will never hurt you. Which is a lie. It's a deceit that actually. Um, Bones mend. But abused Bruised souls often find it much harder to mend. You you may well forget the injury that you received on a football field and continue to remember the unkind word that was said to you, the vicious word, the unpleasant lies that were told about you, that painful nickname that everybody else thought was funny but that you hated every time it was mentioned Those things can stay on and on and cripple and demean people. Worse still are lies, untruths that people continue to believe and relate to you on the basis of what is untrue. Uh, The public media are terrific at their capacity for telling lies, especially about Christians here in Sydney and not the least about our cathedral. Uh, we have had people tell us that our choir has been abandoned and our choir pews sold. Even when they come in as tourists and we show them the choir pews, even when they come to church on a Sunday and they hear the choir, they still believe that the pews have been stolen and the choir no longer exists because they heard it on the radio or they saw it in the newspaper. And The newspaper and the radio are more to be believed than their own eyes. Obviously we've got some other pews that we've just bought in for the occasion to deceive them and we've just rattled up a choir quickly so as to be able to deceive them because we have done away with those things. It's been in the newspaper. Their hearts then are poisoned by these lies and deceits such that they will not befriend us, because they know about us. So the psalmist is praying for deliverance, deliverance from lying lips and deceitful tongues, when he turns to the judgment that is coming in verses 3 and 4, for the individual who is so attacking him. You deceitful tongue, he says, as he calls him. You are going to receive what it is that you have given, a warrior's incendiary arrows set alight by the glowing coals of the broom tree it not only pierces its target but also sets fire to anything it contacts here is the ancient world's missile the damaging and destructive burning arrow for that is what lies are like they are aimed at people like like burning arrows they pierce the heart and they burn whatever they come in contact with Such a picture reminds us of the letter of James where chapter 3 speaks of the tongue like a spark. Small and almost of no significance that can set off the whole forest fire. Something that we here understand only too well is the bushfire. So the enemy with his lies and deceits is like the person who sets off the bushfire. What is done to him is that which he is doing in attacking and destroying by his lies. For the psalmist feels the problem of his life dwelling among enemies. Verse 5, woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech, uh, that I dwell amongst the tents of Kedar. Now these two places mentioned, Meshech and Kedar, and nowhere near each other. You couldn't live in them both of them at the same time anyway. They're rather at the extremities of the world known by then beyond which were pagans and barbarians. Mechet was in the northeast from Palestine. It was uh, between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea. Well there's only Ukrainians and Russians beyond that and We know what they're like. And so those nomadic raiders would come from there. They are wild, violent people. Kera is in the southeast beyond Arabia into the Arabian desert where, again, violent, uncivilized people lived for who else would be there. The psalmist perceives his life as caught between these these two pagan extremities and communities. They are people who are hostile to God. They are people who are hostile to God's people. And that is his his life. His life is lived amongst those who are in hostility, violent people. As he calls it in verse 6. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate p. I, I have a problem here, my friends uh, I, I, you 'll notice in your outline there that we have p those who hate p that 's what happens when you go too quickly in the morning and don 't and spell checks don 't help you with things like that. The outline is wrong. But when I came to see the outline, it reminded me of one of my favourite T-shirts that was given to me many years ago that I used to wear with great joy, sending up the Beatles who sang endlessly, all we are saying is give peace a chance, all we are saying is give peace a chance. And so someone gave me a a T-shirt with peas on it saying, give peas a chance. And so it reminded me of one of the happier times of my sartorial elegance, when I used to go around wearing give peas a chance, for here they hate pea. Leaving aside the stupidities of our youth here for a moment, it should be of course, peace. Those who hate peace, for they are evil people who hate peace, who always live for strife and warfare, who settle all difference by power, and by the exercise of power, by fighting and quarrelling. Today is the day in which we remember the war to end all wars, when millions of young service personnel were barbarically killed, and the whole nature of Western civilisation changed. They were killed for empires and for nationalistic pride, but it was at the high point of people's evolutionary understanding of civilization, of Christian civilization. And never has Christian civilization recovered from the First World War. The whole nature of the despair of human sinfulness, which was not part of that evolutionary view of liberal Christianity, has been the only part of Christianity that you can now seriously believe so the outsider would tell us and today a hundred years later there are people who still prefer war to peace. Gaza Strip has seen 1,700 killed in the last couple of weeks. Just on the other side of Palestine Syria has seen 170,000 killed over the last couple of years and then you just move further across to Iraq, where ISIS or ISIL, depending which name they're using, has, have, have now brought a whole new meaning to the conflict between the Shiite and the Sunni as it consumes Southwest Asia, and as Christians and Jews in particular suffer. This symbol, the, the letter N" in Arabic, stands for Nazarenes, and is, it was used. To identify Christians who are given the choice, in, especially in the town of Mosul, saying you either convert or you pay the tax or you forfeit your property or you die, that is where it is, and it's now becoming a new symbol for Christians, a new cross to wear, to identify myself as a Nazarene, as one who who will not let go of life and property, but who will suffer. For the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the figures I haven't got that are accurate but the thousands who were in Iraq just 20 years ago are no longer, it was over a million I understand who were there, it's around 50,000 now as these last 20 years have seen a terrible, terrible religious genocide in that, in that country. And that sign, the the sign of N, the Arabic letter, becomes for us a sign of what it is to take up the cross and follow Jesus. It's a new cross, so to speak. It says, I'm a Nazarene. I'm a follower of Jesus of Nazareth. And I will suffer the consequences of it. For Islam claims to be a religion of peace. But everywhere it goes in the world today, War follows, for its view of peace is conquest, and their method of bringing peace is military pacification. It's written into their very documents. It is the character of their leader and founder, for Muhammad conquered Mecca at the head of an army of 10,000 people. As the Lord Jesus Christ conquered Jerusalem, sitting on a donkey, coming in to be crucified. Never have two concepts of peace been further apart than Muhammad in Mecca and Jesus in Jerusalem. But back to the psalm. The psalmist, he describes himself in verse 7 as, I am for peace. He's not using his tongue to stir warfare, or to, but to bring peace. Lies and deceit are the first victim of war because they generally precede the first shot that the battle starts with. It's the lies and the deceits that have led to the misunderstandings and the conflicts that are being aroused. The man of God, though, is not a violent man. The man of God spurns violence. The man of God is not to be a liar, but somebody whose soul is at peace and who wishes, as Paul writes to the Romans, inasmuch as he is able to live at peace with all people. And so James, the brother of John of Jesus, rather, wrote of the use of the tongue and his great danger in causing warfare and damage. James would have known the teaching of Jesus. That the devil was the father of all lies and the bringer of murder. Jesus said in John 8, You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar. And the father of lies. The unbelieving world has so taught us to laugh at caricatures of the devil. Opera cloak, pitchfork, poking people into barbecues. That we fail to see the reality of the power of the devil. The power of the devil lies in telling lies. That's his power. He told a lie to Adam and Eve. And look at the consequence. And he is an accuser of God's people, telling lies that we will not be forgiven, that Jesus' death was insufficient for us. It's the lies by which he takes people into death. For he was a murderer from the beginning. He is the one who has brought death to us. Lies and violence and murder all go together. Though we are such common liars that we have separated those. I may tell a lie, but I would never kill. I'm afraid the two go hand in hand and have much in common. For remember what James wrote. Come with me. Have a look. Don't remember. Turn across to page 1206. 1206. And look what he wrote in the third chapter of his epistle. James chapter 3 I'm picking from verse 2 which is right up the top of page 1206 for we all stumble in many ways and if anyone does not stumble in what he says he's a perfect man able to bridle his whole body if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us we guide their whole bodies as well look at the ships also though they are so large and driven by strong winds they are guided by very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs so also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. For every word, kind of beast and bird or reptile, sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil, full of deadly poison. Here is the character of the tongue, you see. It's not neutral. It's full of deadly poison. And here is the psalmist. Back we go to Psalm 120. Here is the psalmist wishing deliverance from the evil, hostile, violent people. That is, those who tell lies and deceive. And how he wants to be a man of peace, not violence. Before well, we turn to Psalm 121, and Naomi's going to read it. It's over the page now. Naomi's going to read for us uh, this psalm, which, again, relatively short, but... Come name it. Come, come. Relatively short, but of a different character. So this is on page six one six, Psalm one hundred and twenty one, a song of ascents. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. and forevermore. Thank you again it starts with a plea this time looking to the hills now we're not sure why the hills remember psalms are poems it's poetry which is evocative more than mathematical you can't always be precise with these things and hills stand for a whole variety of different things which one does he mean here hills can be dark and menacing the home of robbers and brigands Hills were often the place of pagan worship, the center of false gods and false idols that people would go up to the mountaintop to pray. Hills can be the coming towards Jerusalem in the ascent of the pilgrims. Hills can be from the place from which God dwells and will bring his pleasure. You see is verse one two sentences or one? Uh, Leave aside how our translators and publishers have put it It could be two sentences. The first one, fearful. I lift my eyes up to the hills. And then the question, you see, from where does my help come? Or it could really one as one sentence. I lift my eyes up to the hill from where my help comes. And both make perfect sense of the words that are in front of you. It depends whether you see the hills as a negative, nasty thing or the hills as a place where God dwells from where you get the help. However... Whichever way you want to understand the first verse, verse 2 about the help is perfectly clear. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Now what a great statement it is. The Lord, Yahweh, because you see it's in uppercase there, the Lord, Yahweh, is the source of my help. He is my helper in the struggles of life and in the dangers of life. He is the one that I look to as the psalmist in Psalm 120 does the Lord Yahweh who is my help can help me in all things for he is the one who has made heaven and earth I'm not praying to an impotent God a little God a minor God I'm praying to the God who's made everything Yahweh was never a local God one of the nationalistic gods the God of the Moabites the God of the Palestines the God of the Philistines the God God Yahweh might be the God of Israel but the God of Israel was the God of everybody whether they liked it or not he was the God of everybody he wasn't limited to one region of the world or to one expertise. He's the God of war. He's the God of healing. He's the God of love. He's the God of crops. Polytheism has all these different gods, all of whom have limited abilities. But this God, Yahweh, is the maker of heaven and earth. There is no limitation to his abilities and therefore to his protection. So the great affirmation of this Psalms are about Yahweh, about the Lord. He who is introduced in verse 2 as the helper who made heaven and earth. He is the one who keeps us, who protects us, who shields us, who watches over us. The verb to keep runs all the way through this psalm. It's what God does for us in the troubles and in the travails of life. So just look with your eye down there, verse 3 He who keeps you will not slumber. Verse 4, behold he who keeps Israel. Verse 5, the Lord is your keeper. Verse 7, the Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. Verse 8, the Lord will keep. So the dominant theme of this psalm is such that I've called the psalm, the Lord is your keeper. For that's what it's about. For he protects and keeps us from the dangers and disasters, as is spelt out in the rest of the psalm. Your footing will be safe and secure, for that is what he keeps you. Verse 3, he will not let your foot be moved. He, He knows that. Your shade will be provided. You'll be protected from evil and cared for in all of life. For Yahweh doesn't slumber. He doesn't sleep on watch. He's vigilant and persistent, always awake to be talked to, always ready to act on our behalf. You may remember the taunts on Mount Carmel that Elijah had with the the prophets of Baal on that great episode and event when the the two altars were set up and how the prophets of Baal all day prayed shouting and dancing and cutting themselves and how Elijah is so politically incorrect and rude at what he says to them. How he says shout louder maybe he's gone to the toilet at, if you check the English translations it doesn't say that but in the Hebrew that's actually what it does say maybe he's in the toilet and he can't hear you in there or maybe he's gone to sleep so shout louder because he's not awake to help you when you need him Yahweh is always awake he's always on duty he neither slumbers nor sleeps he's never silent because he's gone off for a quick kip he 's always ready to intervene in any and every situation on our behalf, and so it always provides shade shade from the strike of the sun and from the strike of the moon. The strike of the sun giving us sunstroke and sunburn again, we have a fair idea of the problems of sun, but also the strike of the moon giving us madness and lunacy. It's a funny business, isn't it? I've never actually, and and please don't provide me with the documentation, uh, irrespective of whether people can prove it or not prove it, you can't be the Dean of the cathedral and not notice the rise in problems that you have in the centre of Sydney with people's mental stability depending on whether it's the full moon or not the the evidence of our experience is more overwhelming whatever scientific evidence it's weird isn't it why should the moon have any effect upon people's mental stability I do not know but come around here next full moon there'll be plenty of work for you to do it's the he will he will he will save you he will shade you God is there to protect us and to keep us like a shield that we have on our right side we carry our shield on our left side because our our swords on the right side therefore our vulnerable side is not the left our vulnerable side is our right side where we have no protection but we have Yahweh he is our protector on the right side he will guard us importantly he will guard and protect you from all evil verse 7 as Jesus taught us to pray lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil all manner of evil that is at work in this world and it's Yahweh that we should look to to protect us from the evil of others who would harm us to the evil of Satan who would seduce us to the evil of our own hearts that would betray us we pray to the Lord to protect us from all evil for he is the one who will keep us in all of life verse 8 puts it the lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore hebrew is a lovely language in its its concrete way of expressing abstract concepts when it wants to talk about knowing someone personally it says i know you face to face it's kind of reminds me of the Maoris in their they're they're touching noses with each other so as to actually demonstrate there's nothing between you and me. We would say it at a great distance, there's nothing between me and you because we don't want to get that close and personal, whereas they will stand forehead and nose touching each other to actually demonstrate there is nothing between us. It's a real knowing each other face to face. And Hebrew is that kind of concrete language, If it wants to talk about all of your life, well, there's the getting up and there's the going down. There's the going out and there's the coming in. And in every aspect of your life, it is being said, the Lord will keep you. It's a lovely way of talking about his care for you in all the excursions we engage in in this world. And so the psalmist encourages us to see the Lord as my keeper. There's all kinds of ways in which you can think of God. My rock is one of the ways the Bible talks about it. Again, very Hebrew physical kind of sense of the stability, the safety, the security of a great rock. He, he's my keeper. He is the one who looks after me, watches over me, guards me, protects me. He is the one who is going to keep me. Turn with me to page 1222. 1222 and you come to the second last book of the Bible the epistle of Jude and if there is a theme of the book of Jude it's the theme of this psalm for you'll notice in verse 1 Jude a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ there's a way of describing christians we are the people who are kept for jesus christ and you go down to verse six and the angels who did not stay within their own positions of authority but left their proper dwelling he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day see god is sovereign he keeps people where he wants them he keeps them as he wants them for one group, they are kept for Jesus. For another group, they are kept in their place, in punishment. And so we Christians, verse 21, we need to keep ourselves, as he says, verse 20, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. We need to be keeping ourselves as God keeps us because we cannot keep ourselves without him keeping us and so you get that lovely doxology at the end of the book verse 24 now To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God our saviour through Jesus Christ our Lord. Be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all times now and forever. We must keep on being Christian. We must keep ourselves in Christ Jesus. But the great news is our God is the keeper. He keeps us. And so as we put our faith in him, we're putting our faith in the faithful one. As we keep ourselves in Christ Jesus, we are keeping ourselves in the one who is the keeper of his people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection for us. And we do beg for your continued mercy upon us, please, Father that we may not be the workers of violence, that we would be guarded in our mouths and speak the truth rather than lies, and that we may ever be kept by you, our sovereign Lord, kept by you in all aspects of life, in our going out and our coming in, kept from evil, kept in protection, kept in the Lord Jesus Christ in whose name we praise you. Amen.